G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Taming Podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Okay, we're back for another episode, and boy, it is a beauty. I'm joined by a Melbourne-based teacher, speaker, author, and founder of The Resilience Project, Hugh Van Kylenberg. And now, if you're not already aware or familiar with this guy, as a basic snapshot, Hugh authored the brilliant book, The Resilience Project, and travels around Australia with an incredible program introducing to schools as well as sporting clubs and other organizations, which we'll explore a bit today, some important messages around mental health and how to be more resilient through gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. I love his approach. His story is super interesting. The book's a fantastic read, and I know you guys are going to get a ton of value from this chat today. We're going to learn lots as always, and I think we'll have some fun too. So I'm grinning from ear to ear to have a chance to connect with you today, mate. Uh, so with that said, welcome to the show, Hugh. Thank you, Liam. Thanks so much for having me. I, I apologize. Uh, you got a real life test of my resilience as we spent 20 minutes trying to work out the technology. <laughs> 20 minutes off air and trying to make it work, but we're here now. And good thing I read your book too, mate. So I was able to handle the situation as well. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sometimes people deliberately make the technology hard to work. So like, let's really test how resilient this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't my intention, mate, um, but look, we got there in the end, bit of potluck. So there's a lot I want to cover with you today, mate, but we'll we'll see what we can get through in this, uh, this window of time we do have together. Where I want to start is to give a snapshot of these three pillars of resilience you talk about, and then we'll unpack it all, of course. But for now, what exactly does it mean to be more grateful, more empathetic, and more mindful, and why are these so important? Yeah, so I think the really important thing to start the whole conversation is is just there's a lot of science behind these three things there's a lot of science that says when you practice these things you become happier and you improve your mental health the science doesn't say you automatically get rid of a mental illness or you completely safeguard yourself from mental illness um, what it says is it helps you to experience more positive emotion um, throughout your day and the research behind positive emotion is pretty amazing and the research behind positive emotion says that the more positive emotion you experience, the more resilient you'll be. A lady called Barbara Fredrickson back in 2003 did incredible research, or 2002 I think it was, but it was after 9-11. Um, and she looked at people who had survivors through 9-11 from New York, New York, and she basically looked at the common characteristic for the people that bounced back the quickest from the trauma that they were dealt. And what she found was the most common characteristic was in fact positive emotion the ability to experience positive emotions so um yeah i think it's important to say there's science behind this stuff but it's also not going to fix people automatically I, I sometimes get people contacting me saying oh, i've been practicing these things for a month and i still have depression or still have anxiety we, we, we don't say that this is going to end depression and anxiety for people instantly but it certainly helps you to feel 
um, happier. So um, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. Gratitude is a really important one for us in Australia because I think we struggle with this massively. It's gratitude's the ability to pay attention to what you've got and not to worry about what you don't have. I feel like so many of us in Australia struggle with this because we kind of, we're so focused on external factors to make us happy. So if I, it's called the if and then model of happiness. If I buy this car, then I feel happy. If I mm. buy this house, then I feel happy. If I, if I have this many followers on social media, then I feel happy, whatever it is. Um, the problem with that is when you get that amount of followers on social media, you then think, no, I need to have that many followers on social media. And then when you buy that car six months later, you see a nicer car and think, no, I need to have that car, then I feel happy. We're just not very good at paying attention to what we already have. And that's where joy comes from looking. And we've got so much in countries like Australia. So um, I think most people understand that, Liam. I reckon most people in Australia go, yeah, it may not be a car or social media or, or a house, but there might be something that you are thinking, yeah, if I get that, um, then I feel happy. Um, so, um, and then empathy and mindfulness, I mean, they're all pretty straightforward things. Empathy is when you feel what someone else feels and the research says the better you are at feeling what someone else feels, the more likely you are to be kind. I'm reading, a, a, there's a beautiful kids book I'm reading to my son um, who's three and a half years old. It's his favorite book at the moment and it's called You, Me and Empathy. And it's just all about a child developing their empathy. And even just flipping through the pages with him, it's just like, it should be in the, you know, no shit Sherlock category. It's just so obvious, but like, you watch this kid's journey through starting school and, and she realizes that the more she empathizes with the other kids, the happier she feels. Um, and I'm looking at going, why do I bother even, like I talk about the science behind it, I was doing my talks, you know, because you need to convince people, you know, I talk about the neuroscience behind it, the oxytocin, all the stuff that happens when you're kind to people yep. um, and you empathize with people. But I'm reading this kid's book going, why am I, why do I need to even go into the science? This stuff is so, <laughs> obvious like it's such an obvious thing and and mindfulness very simply is when you're calm and when you're present as far as i'm concerned and um and, and we struggle with that particularly what the world's going through right now but we we spend so much time thinking about the future and the past and we don't have control over the future or the past so the more time you spend worrying about something you don't have control over the more anxious you'll become the only thing we ever have control over in our lives is is what's happening right now um, and, but we only spend, the research says we only spend 15% of our day thinking about what's happening as it's happening. So we've got to get better at, and that's not like, we're not bad people. I'm just saying that's when you're, um, having coffee with a good friend that you've been looking forward to catching up with for a while. And then you realize for the last two minutes, you haven't listened to a word they said, because you're thinking about the next meeting you ever go to or the, Absolutely. you know, what, what, uh, yeah, whatever it is. And, and we're not bad people. We just find it very hard to keep, slow our minds down so we can just stop and be present. So, um, they're the three things. I mean, I feel like it's not what I presented in my book. It certainly wasn't, you know, earth shatteringly incredible brand new research or information. It's pretty good. Don't, don't say you're so <laughs> short. <laughs> well, well, that's very kind, but I think, I mean, if I, I suppose if we were to explain it to, sure. You know, to, if you were to say to someone, Oh, look, we think if you pay attention to what you've got, not worry about what you don't have, if you are kind to other people and if you're more present, you're going to be happier. I mean, I think that, I feel like that should be obvious, but but maybe one of the reasons the book has done reasonably well is because it's not, well, it might be obvious, but we've kind of forgotten. We're so busy. Well, we were so busy that we kind of forgot the small basic things that we can do every single day. Well, I think a lot of the stories uh, you share throughout the book make it easy to digest as well and really relatable. Uh, now, I know you spent a lot of time in India. Was that experience something that opened up your mind 
to these practices of gratefulness, empathy, mindfulness, or was that something you were pretty clued onto as a kid? Um, I suppose, what did you take away from that time teaching in India and maybe share a little bit on your, your buddy Stun, so I think his name was, uh, that you met over there? Um, yeah, I mean, if India didn't happen, there would be no resilience project, really. So it was a hugely seminal moment in my life. And, and, I, and I, I don't think I've ever given her proper credit for this. It was actually my ex, um, ex-partner, my ex-fiancé, a lovely, uh, a wonderful person by the name of Anjali, who I was with for, for quite some time. She said, um, it was back in 2008, and I was playing a lot of cricket at the time and coaching cricket and loving it. And I didn't want to leave Melbourne because I wanted to be around for pre-season. And she said, no, I've got to go and live overseas for a bit. And I was saying, no, no, I'm very happy in Melbourne, don't want to go. Um, and she kept saying, no, no, we, we just have to go. And um, I can't remember who, I think she would have chosen India because her, 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 um, her father's Indian. So I think it was her choice to go to India. And honestly, I mean, the first two or three weeks, if anyone's been to India before, the first two or three weeks I was there, I just was like, I just want to go home. This is awful. I've never experienced, like it was culture shock. It was complete attack of the, like the, I don't know if you've been have you been to India before I, I actually haven't no but I've sent hundreds of people there over my time in the in the travel industry so I know a bit about it of course yeah well you've probably heard plenty of stories but it's um I wouldn't say you feel comfortable in India for a lot it took me I don't know two or three months until I felt comfortable and then something happens and you feel very uncomfortable again and it's um it's it's uh anyway I would I mean the point is I would have come home if it wasn't for her she said no no we need to stay. And then she said, let's do volunteer teaching. And I said, no, no, let's get, let's go and get a teaching job so we can get paid to teach and earn some money. And, you know, I was 28 at the time and I'd never sent to my name. So I felt like, oh gosh, I should be earning money here. And, and she said, no, no, we should volunteer. And, and um, so we volunteered purely because of her. And, and we ended up in a village up in the far north of India called Tixay, where there was no, as you read in the book, there's no running water, no electricity. Everyone's, you know, we slept on a dirt floor while we were there. You know, we, there, was, there were no beds. It was a very poor community. And it was there that I met this community of people um, in the village of Tixo that just to me seemed like the happiest, most relaxed, easy. And we talk about the fact we're easygoing in Australia. We're not. We're the second most <laughs> medicated country. Uh, we, we are the second most medicated country in the world for anxiety disorder. Yeah. Um, and, and we say we're laid back. So we're clearly not these people. <laughs> these people were laid back. And I... I remember thinking, gosh, there's something these people do that we really could learn of, uh, that we could really learn from. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Uh, and it's interesting how life plays out sometimes and how certain experiences or situations can sometimes have silver linings that change the way we think or even the direction we take our lives. And I think you mentioned in the book that by essentially not carving out um, a career as a test cricketer and you know getting that baggy green, I know you're a a keen cricketer and we're actually pretty decent at it. Um, the silver lining was still that you were able to then uh, identify your true purpose. I think you referred to it as it, which was to help people and their families who perhaps struggle with mental illness. Uh, and I know a large drive behind that was the struggle uh, your sister had growing up. So, you know, if, you, if you're comfortable to share and, and happy to do so, could you share a bit more uh, that story and the impact um, your sister journey had on you and, and the family and how that changed your perspective on mental illness. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, so, I mean, I talk about India saying if India didn't happen, the resilience project wouldn't happen. But I think more, I think a more fair comment is that if, if my sister had never had her battles with mental illness, definitely the resilience project wouldn't exist. Um, so um, when my sister was uh, 14 years old, she was diagnosed with a 
mental illness called anorexia nervosa and I was 16 at the time and I didn't know what that was a mental illness I you know there was no talk of mental illness in schools back in the back in the 90s when my sister and I were at school and uh so I remember mum and dad said oh she doesn't eat and I said what do you mean I said well the illness is that she doesn't eat food so um and I said so what's the cure and they said well obviously when she eats food again she'll get better and I couldn't understand how like my sister would sit back and she would see the pain it was causing my mum and dad and myself, and my brother. Yeah. She still had no interest in eating. And I, I found that I just didn't get it. And I, it took me a while to understand. It wasn't until she was in hospital when she was 18 and weighing in at, you know, I think she was 31 kilograms or 32 kilograms at the time. And that's when I actually realized for the first time how, yeah, that's when I first went, right. I think mental illness is really serious and it's not as simple as, cause I used to get angry when, you know, I'd hear about people who had cancer and I would think, well, like there's nothing these people can do. They're at the mercy of these awful things. Right. Yet my sister, if she eats food, then she'll get better. You can't tell me that this is, you know, I, I just didn't take it seriously. I think I was angry at my sister and, and um, yeah. So, I mean, that was back. Yeah. When she was 18, she was in hospital. And, and um, when I started, when I started to take her mental illness seriously, that's when I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I knew what I could do to help mum and dad to feel happy again. That was my, as, as the eldest in the family, you often feel the responsibility of like, it's your job to yep. make sure everyone's happy. And I sort of it's felt me. like, oh. Yep, uh, I was the oldest of three. Yeah, I'd, oldest of three. Yep, okay, exactly the same. And you kind of feel this, like you're sort of, it's your responsibility to make sure everyone's going okay. Like, uh, And mm. so that was certainly what I felt. And I, and I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to make mum and dad happy. I uh, had no idea. Um, I knew when I, played cricket well it brought great joy to the family they'd all come and watch me uh, little brother uh, sister when she was able to mum and dad they'd all come and watch me play and I was playing for Victoria in the under 19s and I was in the Victoria Institute of Sport and playing first grade cricket at a really young age and I was like oh cool so if I play cricket well then the family's happy which is a ridiculous burden to carry and and um, I was never quite good enough to make it in the end and and um, so I would, I noticed the other thing I could do that made everyone happy was tell stories around the dinner table. Like the dinner table was when it all kicked off. Like my sister would need a dinner and mum would just get so upset. Dad would be crying. And I'd never really seen dad cry before, except for when we put down our first dog, but he would be crying a lot like um, at dinner and you couldn't help it. Like it was just mum yeah. and my sister fighting so much. And so, but I remember thinking if I get in first, like if I, if we sit down for dinner and I get in first and tell a really funny story, if I, tell these wildly embellished, exaggerated stories about my day, it gets a big laugh and we're off to a good start. So I kind of felt it was my duty to do that. Um, and that's kind of, I think actually where maybe I kind of, well, it's funny, look at my job now, it's to tell stories to help people to feel happy. So yeah. I think there's a lot There's a lot in that. But um, uh, yeah, then I felt, so I suppose just to come back to your question, it was, um, yeah, cricket didn't work and then storytelling was, around the dinner table was what sort of helped a little bit, but it didn't really, didn't help my sister's mental illness, that's for sure. So um, there is still a little bit of stigma around mental illness and it's certainly better in more recent times, but there is still a lot of misconceptions, I think, and a lot of the work I try to do personally, um, at least a little bit anyway with this show, is to try and educate and bring light to strategies and just sort of grow the conversation around mental illness. And I think that's what you've been able to do quite well um, but for someone who, and you mentioned there are, you know, Australia being the second most medicated country for anxiety disorders, 
you know, it's no secret, particularly right now amongst the COVID lockdown situation that people are struggling with anxiety, depression, a whole host of mental health challenges that have significant impact on our well-being and our ability to cultivate joy. Um, what's a good starting point for those people who potentially can relate in terms of best practices on how to start executing these three pillars of gratefulness, empathy, and mindfulness that perhaps someone listening yeah, can consider doing today? Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I will do that, but I think before we get to that, it's probably really important to acknowledge for anyone listening right now who's thinking, yeah, I do feel depressed, I do feel anxious, I do feel stressed. I think the most important thing to do before any of that is just to acknowledge that that's a totally normal way to feel right now. That's a, mm-hmm. That is a sane response to a very stressful situation. I mean, fast forward five years um, and just picture yourself explaining what your life was like during lockdown or right. during COVID-19 or wherever you are. Um, and say, oh, we couldn't, I could only leave the house once a day for an hour. Um, I, I couldn't work or I was out of work. My business wasn't going well or I had three kids at the homeschool plus work. My wife and I are at each other or my, my, my husband and I are at each other. Um, and then if, the, if that person said to you, oh, how'd you cope? If you said, if your answer was, yeah, I was fine, you would come across sounding very strange. Like it'd be a weird, yep. it would be weird. It, it, I think it's almost weird if you're totally fine at the moment. I think... <laughs> Um, the ticking time bomb. Yeah, totally. So I think the first thing to acknowledge is it's totally fine not to be okay right now. Yeah, um, I think I did an interview with a guy called Johan Hari. I don't know if you know Johan Hari. I think I've he's written a book. Yeah, he's written a book called Lost Connections and it's, it's an international bestseller, New York Times bestseller. Um, in my view, I think probably the best book I've, I've ever read in my life. And yeah. I interviewed him the other day on our podcast and um he was, I asked him a similar question. Like I said, what would you do right now? And, and he said, I have a real problem. He said, I was actually watching the news the other night and he said, he didn't say which one. He said a really big mental health company in Australia organization who said that he said they do admirable work and I'm a big fan of what they do, but they got asked in a TV show, what's your advice for people right now to feel better? And he said, their advice was to turn the television off and meditate. And he said, I have a real problem with that. He said, I have a really big issue with that because he said, I'm very uncomfortable with it because that takes away, that's not acknowledging the cause of anxiety at the moment. And he said, for example, if you are feeling, if you're experiencing financial pressure at the moment or financial stress, that's one of the causes of depression and anxiety to be, to have financial pressure on you. Mm. And he said, so instead of, turning off the television, ignoring it and meditating and think I'm going to get better. He said, let's have a look at what we can do. He said, like, he said, I'm not a fan of the British conservative government, but they're guaranteeing, they're, they're guaranteeing people 80% of their wages until this thing's over. Um, I can't remember the country in South America or in Africa. I can't remember where, but we, we're very poor economy compared to Australia, but they are paying everyone's salary until this thing's over. And he said, that is, that's, that is a cure right now, <laughs> you know, government. Right. You know, we should be lobbying government. We should be doing more to try and get them to address what is the actual cause right now. So the actual cause for a lot of people, I think a lot of us, we, we can experience the feelings of, of depression, anxiety, and we kind of feel like that's, that's the whole event. Like I'm depressed or I'm anxious rather than going, okay, well, there's smoke around. Where's the fire? Like what's actually causing my depression, and anxiety right now? And I think that's a really important question to ask. What is causing my depression and anxiety? Is it because you're unable to exercise and few exercise a big part of your life? Okay, well, we need to work out ways you can exercise at home. Is it not that that's one of the significant causes of depression and anxiety, but 
Sure. You know, there are things that cause depression and anxiety and have a look at what's causing it for you and try and address that exactly. Um, the things that we ask people to do, um, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, the science says they'll make you feel happier and they'll improve your mental health, which is why we talk about them a lot. Um, and I'm just, this is a very long answer to your question. Sorry, Liam, I just... No, it's I, 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 important, important to recognise. Yeah, yeah, and I just, I just want to... I just want to... I think I don't want people saying, oh, so this guy says if I practice these three things, I'll be able to cope with perfectly there's no silver. With, there's no silver board. I think you've said that yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think, um, so to practice gratitude, my advice is to write down three things went well for you every day in a journal next to your bed. Uh, it's actually become one of the things I look forward to most of my day is just writing down what went well. And you can have a really, you know, rubbish day, but if you can say something like, I had a nice copy this morning, I had a nice text message from my sister and um, I enjoyed my half an hour run today. Although, you know, those, whatever it is. Um, and every night you do that, you start to rewire your brain to start scanning the world for positives, you actually become better at paying attention to the good things uh, that are happening around you. Um, empathy, I would, uh, I would encourage people to write down a list of 10 people that they love and that they miss and they've been thinking about throughout 2020. Uh, they wish they could see. And actually, every single day, choose one person off your list and do something nice for them um, and watch what happens to uh, It's incredible the joy it brings you to do little things for other people. I love that. Uh, and my, uh, mindfulness, I, I, and I'm trying to give, what I want to give is people practical, easy stuff they can start doing. So there are so many courses out there for mindfulness, but if you want to give it a go pretty quickly, one of the things you can do um, is you can go and walk a lap of the block and you can pay attention to what you can hear. And that's it. That's all you need to do. And, and your mind will wonder a thousand times, well, not a thousand times, but 20 or 30 times, you'll start thinking about what you could do later in the day or an issue you had yesterday. Um, that's okay. Every single time your brain does that, just bring it back to what you can hear. And that is quite literally practicing being present. Yeah. Simple stuff. I really like that. I mentioned at the top there as well, Hugh, uh, you've spent a lot of time in schools and sporting clubs as well. And I want to talk about schools in a second but firstly just on the sporting clubs front how did that come about and what's the general approach there is there an overarching message in addition to what we've already uh, kind of touched on here and uh, do you need to adjust your approach at all when you're talking to a bunch of blokes for example in a sports culture that may be less inclined to consider these ideas how do you go about that i thought i did i thought i'd have to um <laughs> but I, it's amazing how um the the, the philosophies or the not philosophies, but the the things like the strategies that I use to in, to engage school kids, um, they're exactly the same for engaging adults. No matter whether they're, you know, I had yesterday I had all the corporate executive team from Coles, um, or they you know, the week before that I had the Port Adelaide football club for an hour. Um, I do a lot of stuff with the Port Adelaide. I'll talk about that in a second. But the the way it all came about was quite simply, I was playing cricket and one of the guys who was new to our club was playing and his dad came and turned, came to watch and I went and introduced myself to him and we were chatting and um, and he said, uh, what are you doing? I told him very, I was about to bat. So I was very quick. I said, oh, I talk about resilience in schools. And, and he said, oh, I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, um, I work at Melbourne Storm. And I said, oh, oh that's interesting. And then he messaged me. Um, he got my email. No, he called me. He called me. He called me a few days later and said, do you want to come and speak? At Melbourne Storm, and I thought he meant to the staff or a junior group. He said, "No, no, like the actual playing group." 
Mm. And I said, no, I think I said, I said oh, no, I can't, I, this is a primary school, secondary school, but it's not for rugby league footballers. And he said, how do you know? And I said, what do you mean? He said, how do you know it's not for them? And I said, well, I haven't done it. He said, exactly. So come and give it a go. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And um, I remember Billy Slater cut me off. Um, this is back when Billy Slater was playing. It was back in 2015. I've never been so nervous for a talk. The biggest men I've ever seen in my life walked in. Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, Cooper Cronk, Will Chambers. I don't follow rugby league. Well, I didn't back then. And, but, but I knew, uh, I knew Billy Slater and Cameron Smith and, and they're just the biggest men ever. And five minutes in, I just remember looking at their faces going, oh my gosh. This is hitting home more than the primary school kids, which is my absolute bread and butter. These boys are loving this. And I was, and then um, we had another session a week later. And at that session, the head of player welfare, in the end, so director of player welfare, a guy called, a lovely guy called Paul Heppenstall, he was in the back row. And I was thinking, What's in the, what on earth is he doing here? I introduced him at the start. And he came up to me and said, afterwards, that was good. Cooper's coming. Well, he said it was much more complimentary than that, but he said, can you come and speak at our player welfare conference um, for all the clubs, for all the wellbeing managers in a couple of weeks? I said, yeah, that's fine. Went up to Sydney and did that. And then we booked in every single club. Every single club wanted it in the next six months. So that's how the sport program took off. And it was a, it was a whirlwind. And I, I um, wish I'd done it in a way that's a little bit more gentle on myself. Like I did six one-hour presentations at every club in the competition in six months, which nearly yeah. killed me. <laughs> on top of all the other stuff I was already doing in schools. But um yeah that's how it all started i guess the sporting program and i mean we we um it's really it's really quite topical for elite sports people too because you know every player i speak to when i stand there talking to them they've all got shit they're going through they're all struggling with something like all of us and gratitude's a really big one for them because i mean for every, pretty much every single one of them will be saying something like oh if i was Get playing this position, then I'd feel happier. If I, if we won a grand final, then I'd feel happy. If I got picked in the team, if I was on this contract, then I'd feel happy. But for every single one of them, you know, what was your dream growing up as a kid? It was to play AFL football or NRL football. What are you doing? You are literally living your dream. Yeah. People around the country would kill to be in your situation. You are living your dream. Like just pay attention to that rather than, but if I get that contract, then I feel happy. And that's a, that hits home with a lot of them. Uh, the mindfulness stuff is huge for them. Um, and they, they have opportunity. I mean, the opportunities for them to be kind, what it leads to compared to your average person like you or me, Liam, but like if they are walking down the street for them to stop and chat to a kid or to give a kid something or to sign some of a photo with them, it's such a simple thing for them to do, but it just makes someone else's day. I still remember as a kid, my brother and I were laughing about this the other day, but my dad, uh, is a dentist. He was a dentist. Um, he's retired now. (laughs) When in 19, uh, I'll get this right, 1989, I was nine years old. No, I was older than, no, it was 1992, so I was 12. My brother was six. My dad was the on-call dentist at the MCG and a guy called, <laughs> a guy called Desmond, no, a guy called, yeah, a guy called Desmond Holmes. I don't think about if the West Indies got hit in the face and knocked his teeth and he had to go and see my dad. And he gave my dad his sweatband as a gift a dirty old disgusting sweatband <laughs> dad brought it home for us and we we're like this is the greatest day of our lives like Absolutely. we've still got we've still got the headband it's like from a guy we never met covered in sweat it was disgusting and we we're all like how awesome is this desmond Haynes sweatband and we still we still got it like he gave away a sweatband it made it was like we th- so these my point is these players any opportunity they have to be kind to someone 
when they take it, it's good for that person. It's also good for them. So the principles are the same. And we've gone gone one step further with Port Adelaide now. We do a lot of stuff together. So we're getting the the boys to embrace vulnerability and tell their real story from the heart so they can talk about who they really are so that they can turn up to the club every day and just be themselves. And it just saves you so much emotional energy when you are comfortable being yourself. Mm. And then as a byproduct, I imagine that emotional energy they're saving, um, they can dive further into their training and allow them to execute and perform better. Totally. It's some, it's some of the stuff that guys have shared, that, you know, they didn't know that their teammate, the person who sits next to in the locker room is going through what they're going yeah. through and it enables them to support them a bit better. And um, I'm not saying that's why all of a sudden they're on top of the ladder and, you know, playing so oh, well. It, coincidence. Yeah, I mean the timing's very interesting, but nothing to do with me. But um, uh, but they certainly, um, you know, the feedback I hear from the players is it's been a a really life changing experience just to really take the mask off. And you know, I, I, as people say in sporting clubs, people are told to leave the shit at the door and don't bring the group down. And yeah, but it's across society, I reckon we just put on this brave face that we're okay. And I think most of the time, you know, we're kind of not okay. We're all going mm. through something hard, and the more we share that then the easier it is just to to really embrace who we really are look mate i I bloody love that um and you know we're talking off air and you spent a fair bit of time in the cricket world i grew up playing footy and cricket most of my life you know i've been around that culture and you know for the most part i think there's something really intrinsically rewarding about going after a goal and striving and being ambitious and that's fantastic but you know at the end of the day and really the overarching message of this show I, i kind of riff on consistently is this idea that your North star should be to feel good. That's ultimately what matters. Um, you know, going up that Holy grail of an AFL premiership, for example, whatever it is, even outside the sporting realm, you know, that process is cool and exciting, but if it is at the detriment of our well being, and you know, you're not enjoying the process, it's kind of pointless because the whole idea of going after that is you're chasing a feeling, right? And I think that message gets lost a bit. So it's really great to see people like yourself encouraging the right message back into the sporting culture a little bit. Um, and I'd love to know, mate, how you found or have you found that your approach to the conversation around mental health, positive psychology, these practices we talk about uh, has meant you've been able to then reach more people. And what I mean, mate, is, you know, you, you enjoy having a laugh, you're relatable, very genuine. Has that allowed you to be more effective and connect with people on a deeper level? Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think my and it might sound a bit silly, but my goal when I go to a sporting club or to anywhere is for people to feel like they've been standing at the bar at a pub with me having a beer. <laughs> like, uh, because like when you go to the pub and have a beer or you go to a cafe and have a coffee, whatever you like to drink and you're standing around and, and there's nothing better when people start telling stories. That's when you, telling stories is the, they're just, stories are so good for so many reasons. They're so engaging uh, we love listening to stories. We love telling stories. Ever since, you know, storytelling has been a big part of Australian history, really. And I feel like if you... I remember I remember going to a sporting club and I probably shouldn't say which one, but I, I, I was speaking and there's a guy afterwards there speaking on positive psychology straight after me. And he's a man who knew far more than I did. He had a much um, much better credentials and, and, and his, his knowledge of the topic was far greater than mine and so i said oh do you mind if i hang around and watch and uh, he said yeah that's fine go for it listen um and i listened to him and we had very similar messages he knew so much more than i did and he gave 
quoted some amazing research and gave this gave the science part but i remember looking at the players and three of them had fallen asleep halfway through and i was thinking god that's so rude and i was thinking no do you know what if i was a footballer you know go back to when i was 21 22 i would have fallen asleep as well this is actually so boring um but i was thinking if this guy just told stories like you know it'd just be so much better so i think i think the power of storytelling and and being like the, the the main thing i try to use throughout my talks and it's it's funnily enough i whenever, whenever my wife says how'd you go today i've realized that when i say the talk went well what i mean is people laughed a lot and if i think if people didn't laugh and the talk didn't go well that's what i kind of gauge it on and i think laughter is the key to sort of ease you into what can be a really confronting topic but if you're laughing throughout it's a lot more of a accessible way to oh, it's a much better way of accessing this information when you and not being lectured to, you know, talk down to. One of the key things a presenter has to do is to put themselves, I think, on a level with the people that they're speaking to. So people do this really well. Uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, Billy Connolly, both comedians, but the first thing they do is just establish that, hey, I'm just like you, like I'm just a shit kicker like you. Um, and they take the piss out of their wealth a lot as a way of saying, um, I take the piss out of me as well. So like, you know, I'm just like you. And the second Absolutely. you can relate to someone, the second you can relate to someone, uh, you're in. You go, yeah, I relate to this person. I can see myself in this person. So then just on the storytelling, and this will be a good little segue before we wrap things up, into the work you do in schools. Uh, could you share with us the story of, I think it was the grade five girls you were teaching at the time. You set them an assignment or some some homework to create a dance. Could you could you give us a snapshot of, of that story? Because I think that was really cool to to build laughter into their world and the positive benefits that come from that alone are, are tenfold. Yeah, I was teaching at a, at a wonderful, wonderful girls' school in uh, Melbourne called Fintana Girls' School, and I loved it dearly, and I have the most treasured memories of, of teaching at Fintana. Um, I went and taught an all-girls' school simply because I, um, my, my sister's battles anorexia, and I thought, oh, if I go there, I'd be able to help heaps of kids and, um, who are battling with body image stuff, not, not really understanding how I was going to do it back then. I was only 24 when I started teaching there, but... Um, what I discovered was the, the girls I had were the most studious, scholastic, focused. Um, everything was about literacy and numeracy. Their parents had sent them there because they wanted really good academic results for them. Um, and their hair was perfect, their blazers and it's private school. And like, it was, it was too tight. The whole place was just the school, the classroom was too tidy for me. They were just, I'd say, girls, we're doing this work now. Absolute science, no one would talk. And I was just sitting there going, God, this is boring. I want some classroom management. Um, there's, no, there's no one who's mucking up here. No one's stuffing around. They're all 10, 11 years old. And I, um, so I just tried to give them a bit more of a, um, I wanted to be a bit silly. They did so much homework every night. And if I didn't give it to them, their parents would get some, they all had tutors outside. So um, we, um, <laughs> I, I think I kind of wanted to send a message to the parents really <laughs> more than anything. Because the kids were up having fun, but the parents wouldn't embrace it at home. So, their homework, which was written in the diary, was I put on this video called um, The Little Lad Dance. It's a, if you look it up on YouTube, it's very weird. Well, that's one of the weirdest things you'll ever see and very funny. Um, yeah, the Little Lad Dance. I'll take word for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's really odd. It's this guy dressed up in, I don't even know how to explain it, but people can look it up. The Little <laughs> Lad Dance, Berries and Cream. You look up. It's an ad for Berries and Cream, but he does this really weird dance, sings a very strange song, and it's just odd. 
and I showed it to the girls and they were in hysterics watching it. But you can see they're like, are we allowed to laugh at this? Like, yes, it's okay. <laughs> and then I said, um, okay, so your homework tonight, girls, get your diaries out. And I was like, okay, ready for homework. And they're like getting their books, showing me the master which you've seen. I said, your homework is to learn the little dance song, the little lad dance song and the little lad dance, uh, the little lad dance. And tomorrow morning we'll be doing the dance together and you must know the words, you must know the dance. And you could see it was really confronting to some of them going, I can't not do my homework. I have to do my homework and I can't not do it. I have to know the words, but this is ridiculous. Like I can't, is this serious? Like it was so confronting for them, but they went home and they learned the, like the next day they walked into the school and I was, that was, I could see that was so excited. I could see him talking about it before school going, did you do it? Yeah, I did it. Yeah. Mum and dad thought it was so weird. Mum got so angry or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I've really rolled the parents up here. Um, and, um, and I wanted to do it. So I pretended I'd forgotten about it. And I pretended I was like in a really serious mood. I was like, get your maths books out. We're doing maths. Now we're doing literacy. Uh, now we're doing geography. And I could see I was just busting it. At the, I was just busting the chops to do it. And so in the end, I said, um, uh, I said, righto girls, it's, um, and I did this like massive over the top announcement. It was time for the little lad dance. And they just burst out of their seats and I pressed play. And they just went berserk. Like, and it was, Where's the most I've ever laughed in my entire life, seeing how seriously they would do it, taking it, but how much they're they loving it at the same time. Um, and I, I, I present at one of the shows I did at Convention Centre last year in Melbourne, we had it was like 2,500 people there and, and there was a big, I always speak to the audience afterwards if they want to talk one-on-one, which is getting a bit out of control at the moment because I used to do it, but the crowd's getting quite big now. So we're sort of, trying to work out what we do there but uh, there was a group of six girls who had who had hung behind a chat and i could see they they weren't in the queue which if you're not in the queue but you're hanging around it means you want to be the last person to speak to me i've i've been that person before i know how it works oh. <laughs> as in I'm the, I'm, no one's waited to talk to me what i mean is i've stuck back to try and pick the brain of whoever's talking yeah totally no i no, totally i knew what you meant yeah yeah, um, yeah and, um, <laughs> maybe one day people will line up but we'll see like, totally Hey, no, I, mate, totally there will be. Yeah. Um, uh, there was, yeah, five or six girls in their early 20s, very well dressed and, and like really beautiful young girls. And uh, they come around and said, and they said, hi, how are you going? You're good girls, how are you? And they were like sort of giggling and, and, and like looking at each other very well. And I was like, this is awkward. And I said, uh, yeah, what's, can I help you? And they went, do you recognize this? And I went, um... Oh my God. And it was the girls from my first ever class as a primary school teacher from, wow. you know, they were 10 at the time, they were 22. Um, they'd just grown up so much. And they, and one of the first things I said was, they said, do you remember the berries and cream dance? <laughs> and I said, I said, bloody oath I do. Um, but yeah, it's funny the things that stick with you and the, you know, the moments you have with your teachers that really stand out. Absolutely, mate. I know you've got to go, so we'll wrap things up. Uh, if we had more time, I'd put you on the spot and get, get you to do your best Bill Laurie imp- uh, impersonation. I was listening to the audio version of your book, mate, and I reckon you nailed it. <laughs> I think, uh, well, there you go. I can, that's why I can plug my book. If you would like to hear me doing a Bill Laurie impersonation, you you'll have to get the audio book of uh, The Resilience Project. <laughs> it's well worth it just for that. Uh, but look, outside of your brilliant impersonation, mate, and, and your stories, you know, I think you, you played some cricket against Michael Clark coming up. And look, I'm a sports guy, so I loved all those references. Uh, but outside that, the message in your book and you know, obviously the work you do around schools and sporting clubs like we've touched on is awesome. Uh, and to that point, just really quickly on laughter, uh, I think your reference in your book, uh, you talk about the three things to change your state quickly to feel better. I think that was really cool and important. Uh, one was laughter and the other two were music and exercise. 
that's something that for me is just three easy things that I add to my daily routine every single day. And it's just a good starting point to feel better fast. Um, but uh, outside of that, mate, is there any sort of parting message for people to start adopting you know, this message of resilience, becoming more grateful, more empathetic and more mindful? I think um, as a broader message on top of that, I think um, the most important thing to tell people and something I wish I'd been told when I was younger, I wish someone had come to my school and talked to me about this was the concept that you are enough, like as you are right now. And it's not in my, I don't say this all in my book. It's something I've been thinking about a lot recently and do a lot of work with a mentor of mine called Ben Crow. Um, that the message to people is that you are enough as you are. You don't need to be the best footballer, the funniest person, sell the most books, have the most listens on your podcast, um, you know, be good. Look, like you, you are enough as you are. You are worthy of love and affection as you are as a human being. You don't need to achieve all the things we set out to achieve to impress people, to gain status. You are enough as you are. And I think if someone had told me that in my early 20s, I would have relaxed a lot more throughout my 20s and 30s of just like, hey, you're enough. You don't need to always be telling funny stories to people. You don't always need to be, you know, achieving stuff with work. You don't need to have a certain amount of money. You're enough as you are. And it's kind of taken me till I'm 40 to understand that I that I am sort of worthy of love and affection as I am right now. Like I, um, I think I spent way too much time worrying about not so much what other people think, but just like I have to keep impressing people and I, um, I think it's a really important people message for people to understand that you are enough as you are. You are worthy of love and affection as you are. Mate, I love that. I can relate to that. I know a lot of people listening could as well. Uh, and funnily enough, if we're really able to buy into that message, it makes things a lot easier to then be more grateful in the moment, You know, be more empathetic and more mindful and then receive all the benefits again that come with that, come with that like we've touched on. Um, so a really good place to wrap on, up on. I hope we get to connect again in the future. I'm sure we will uh, when COVID is all over, mate. Um, I forgot to mention as well, I'm a left arm fast bowler as well myself. So wouldn't mind seeing you in action, mate. Mate, we should uh, we should get out of the net sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll be pretty rusty though, so I don't want to oversell myself. But um... I haven't bowled since uh, the last time I bowled was the last game of cricket I ever played, which is a grand final back in uh, 2006. 16, I think it was 2015, even. So I haven't bowled okay. since then. I was about, I was about I the same. So maybe we'll, we'll ease into it. We'll just have throwdowns. We'll just have throwdowns. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, mate. Well, again, I appreciate your time here. Awesome to connect. Book is fantastic. Some important messages in this. And I've already started adopting these ideas and putting practices into my life that have been great. And I hope people listening will too. So, yeah, uh, all the best with everything you've got going on here. And we'll chat again in the future, I'm sure. Thanks, Liam. And likewise to you, I know your, your business obviously is, is having a travel agent and um, mm-hmm. yeah, it must be challenging times, but the fact you're doing this is, is really impressive, mate. And I, I love what you're about. So congratulations on, on everything you're doing too. It's really awesome. You're a good man. Thanks so much, mate. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.